Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. We are still counting ballots in a handful of key states. The question after that becomes, what legal challenges could and may be raised, if any, to get some color there, we welcome Justin Levitt. He is professor of constitutional law at Loyola Law School based in Los Angeles. Justin, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's assume we get through the next couple of days, and this is really a close one, but what are some of the legal challenges if former Vice President Biden were to win that a President Trump could raise? I don't really think there are any. Um, or at least none that we've seen so far. In order to raise a legal challenge, in order to go to the courts, you need to have some plausible fact scenario that shows a violation of a statute or a violation of the Constitution. And the good news, in a couple ways, is that we got done fighting about most of these things months ago. There were a record number of lawsuits this summer and fall that helped resolve a lot of the issues that would otherwise be contested. And beyond that, yesterday, Election Day, voting was pretty smooth in most of the country. So there really isn't anything we know of now that any sort of legal grounds to protest or contest whatever the final count is. We're still waiting on a final count. We've got to be patient. Um, but a couple days from now, as you suggested, we'll know what that final count is. And it doesn't look like there are any legal grounds to challenge it at this point. But that's pretty phenomenal. If you were working for the Trump campaign, would you say the same thing, though? If I was working for the Trump campaign, I would do what they've been doing for really five years before the president won office the first time and make some wild claims about action in the courts to destabilize and delegitimize the election results. That's, in fact, what we found from the president last night declaring victory completely false, mm-hmm. um, not something he gets to do. And uh, so I might well bluster I might well file lots of things. Um, I might well make a lot of the hand that I'm dealt in the media, but I don't know that I would actually see any legal path to do anything other than that. Uh, Justin, take us back to 2000, Bush, Gore, Florida. Could we have something like that? What was the basis there? Just refresh our memory, and could we have something along those lines? Uh, this time. Sure. I, I think the only way you're going to have something like that, lines is when the counting is done. If the counting is 537 votes apart, if, if Trump and Biden are separated by 537 votes, as Bush and Gore were in Florida in 2000, then yes, you could well see litigation. And the question isn't over what, it's, it's really about everything. So in Florida, there were, as we all remember, problems with hanging chads, punching through punch card ballots in a way that left it ambiguous about who you were voting for. But there were also other problems with ballot design. There were problems with mail ballots. There were problems with military ballots. There were problems with registration. There were problems with purges. There were problems with lines. On and on and on and on and on. Uh, The election in Florida was a mess. And the margin of error was far larger than the margin of victory, which is to say 537 votes close, everything matters. It's unlikely that any of the states this time around are going to be that close. Not impossible, but unlikely. Um, And if the election is 10,000 votes apart or 20,000 votes apart, even though that's a fraction of a percent, that's not the sort of ground that gets overturned in litigation. 
Uh, the election in 2016 was a fraction of a percent in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and New Hampshire. But that was still way too much of a lead to overcome via any sort of litigation. And I think that's more likely to be the case this time around. I don't know who's going to end up on top, mm. but unless it's 537 votes close, I think the people will decide this election and not the courts. It seems ripe for an extraordinarily sharp mind to come up with something new. Is that possible, do you think, Justin, that, that some whippersnapper out there will, will come up with some grounds to sue somebody on and set a new precedent? It's always possible, but again, it's really not likely. Law isn't magic. It's a dispute resolution mechanism. Mm. It exists in order to resolve a complaint that we have based on the way the rules are applied. And it's not like magically conjuring a spell reverses a result. There has to be something that you can point to that is a demonstrable problem that violates the current law. Well, what about Um, ballots arriving after a certain point? Is there the possibility that you could find something to dispute there? There is, um, although I don't know that the results are going to turn on that. I think we're going to have results that clarify a winner one way or another, even without counting uh, those ballots. The only place in which there's a legal dispute over ballots arriving late are places where that deadline changed, places like Pennsylvania or North Carolina um, or Minnesota. There were changes based on changes in state law to what that deadline is. By the way, all ballots in those states essentially have to be cast by election day. So we're really just waiting for the ballots to come in rather than worrying about anybody casting a ballot now. There's a small window of potential fighting or discrepancy over those ballots, ballots that were uh, didn't arrive by Election Day in those states, uh, but that arrive a couple days later if they were cast earlier. But I think that's going to end up being a rather small number of votes. And I don't think it's going to be enough to close whatever margin we have. Again, I don't want to suggest that I know what the answer is going to be, but the states that we've seen so far have been close, but not that close. Mm. Um, I don't think there'll be enough ballots to make up the difference. So, Professor, we, we know Donald Trump's history way before the, he became president is that he is uh, very litigious. So uh, mm-hmm. I think a fair assumption would be that he, in fact, will try to avail himself of the courts here. If he does, what is the kind of timing that we should be thinking about? Yeah, no question. He is litigious. He's been litigious. That's decades long. That's not just as a political figure, but it's certainly continued since he's been president. Um, A lawsuit without provable facts of a statutory or constitutional violation is just a tweet with a filing fee. And so I think you can expect lots of those tweets with filing fees. I would expect lawsuits to be filed maybe as soon as today. Um, there are still a few that are lingering, again, on more minor issues with, with relatively few ballots at stake. Uh, you might see new litigation filed today or tomorrow or over the coming days. I don't think any of those are going to impact the process. If you're looking for something that might maybe sort of kind of possibly impact the process, I think we'll really know what that is after we get the initial count, which means next week or the week after. But I don't really see any big dispute large enough to question those results. So expect the lawsuits to be filed. Don't expect them to work. So I know you're a constitutional lawyer, but I can, uh, I'll ask you a question if you don't want to answer it or if you feel like it, uh, it, it's not your expertise or what have you, then, then fine, just pass. You know, 
Say Joe Biden wins, right? Because right now it's maybe looking a sliver more likely that that he wins, but that the Senate remains Republican. Are we looking at the end of major changes like, for example, the filibuster or, uh, you know, changing the makeup of the Supreme Court or what have you? If it's a split government, does does that not even enter into the picture? It's split government. It's going to be very hard to change uh, the composition of anything. Um, courts, uh, the rest of government procedure, agencies, etc. Um, as the president has discovered, there's there's not all of that much you can do through the executive power alone. Mm. Um, combination of one chamber of Congress and the courts will generally put a stop to most of that. Not all of it, but most of it. Um, you talked about about rules like Senate procedure, like yeah. changes to the filibuster. That's always possible. Um, I honestly don't know whether uh, if the Senate should change hands or if it should remain in Republican hands, whether either party will have an interest in um, eliminating the filibuster. A lot depends on whether there's unified government or not. If Joe Biden ends up winning the presidency, and as we said, we just don't know yet, give it a couple days. Um, If the Senate uh, does become Democratic, They'll be much more interested, I think, in the Democrat side on ending the filibuster, and that's something they can do on their own. Uh, it's just a question of whether they're going to want to. Professor, what do you make of this Supreme Court? Obviously, six to three here, uh, conservative, I guess. How do you expect the Supreme Court is going to rule going forward? Do you have any, do you have any indications? I think they're going to be a very conservative court generally. Uh, there's little doubt of that. That's exactly what President Trump promised, and in that respect, uh, he has indeed delivered. Um, I don't know, uh, and I don't think they're going to really have the opportunity or desire to weigh in on this election. Um, I think there are lots of issues. The justices think of themselves as above uh, individual party politics. They're they're on the court for life. They don't need an individual presidential fight. So despite the fact that the president keeps calling on his justices to save him, I don't think they're interested in doing that. I think that they're likely to be a, a very conservative block, and how they choose to exercise that power is going to be up to the individual issue confronting them. It's not always going to be uh, a conservative outcome uh, in every case. Um, in fact, on some hot-button issues, I think they might prefer to go slowly rather than go quickly. I think you'll see uh, the chief justice, who is currently the median justice, remains quite powerful on the court. But I think it's also likely that the median justice, which is not to say moderate, um, it's quite conservative court, will become either Justice Gorsuch or Justice Kavanaugh, depending on the particular issue at stake. Professor, what would your students at Loyola or indeed other law schools be looking at specifically today? What kinds of questions would they be debating amongst themselves? Well, most of them will be doom scrolling through uh, various social media feeds, I'm sure, um, and or hitting refresh repeatedly on the websites of choice. Um, There's a lot of anxiety out there, and I understand that anxiety. 2020 has been the year of anxiety, not just in America, but globally. Um, And it's reflected in this so far uncertainty about the electoral outcome. Um, I'm sure that people will be paying attention probably more than they should, frankly, to new lawsuits that are filed. There's a lot of wild speculation about where those could go. As mentioned, I don't think they're going much of anywhere. Um, Really, I think if they're smart, and I know they're smart, they'll be paying more attention to us than to anything else. 
And by that, I mean, really, the election process is up to we, the people. We had the chance to express ourselves. Votes are mostly in, a few more trickling in. Um, Now it's up to us to be patient enough to wait. We have to give the people who are counting the ballots time to do their job, to count the ballots to dot I's and cross T's, and when they're making a list, to make sure they check it twice. And if we give it time to work, um, I think that the election process will actually be smoother than all of us are anticipating right now. Um, What comes next is pretty mundane. A lot of local towns and counties are counting ballots one by one. And uh, I have no doubt that my students and the rest of America will be watching that process really closely. Well, it certainly seems like turnout is massively up in general, and we'll know final numbers on that at some point. And uh, we'll be talking to you in the meantime. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with your students and with all that scrolling and debating. Justin Levitt is professor. Justin Levitt is professor of constitutional law at Loyola Law School, and our thanks to him. It is time now to turn back to the markets, which seem to be uh, quite delighted with themselves, at least equity markets at the moment. David Kotok is Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Advisors. David, give us an update on liquidity, because we've seen quite the move in treasuries overnight, and today, again, quite the move in stocks. You know, I mean, there are definitely individual stories, um, you know, an Alzheimer's drug providing some boost to some... Uh, some of the healthcare stocks. But in general, is this a liquid market? Uh, it's a very liquid market in the large cap, Bonnie, in the growth stocks. I, I looked uh, right before the interview. Um, if you looked at the uh, S&P 500 large cap and IJR, which is the ETF for the S&P 600 small cap, The difference in performance today was 300 basis points. So there's liquidity. It's flowing into the NASDAQ. It's flowing into the large cap growth sector. And other parts of the market seem to be either in disfavor or just ignored. So, David, there was a lot of discussion uh, over the last several months about when and if uh, investors should think about rotating out of some of those big tech names that do have the proven top-line growth stories into some of the more cyclical stories that depend upon you know us getting to the other side of this pandemic and getting to economic recovery. Where are you now? Here we are, Election Day, plus one on that thought. Well, uh, we have taken positions in, and we have positions in small cap and mid cap, and um, we are leery of the intensity of the half a dozen stocks that make up the FANG or how, whatever, however you want to spell the acronym, because we've, we're continuing right through today to see this bifurcated market. You have the S&P 505 giants, and you have the other 495, <laughs> and there's a big gap between the two. Um Last week in the sell-off, we saw sentiment reach real extremes, so we went to the buy side. So by the end of last week, we were about 95% invested in our U.S. ETF portfolios, which is where we are today. Um, It's been great for 72 hours. Uh, (laughs) If I were to tell you anything other than I am very nervous and leery here, I wouldn't be telling you the truth. 
David, you're in Florida. I'm just curious as to, you know, whether you anticipated this Florida result. Oh, thank, you know, thank you. I listened to the interview you just had with with your colleague about Florida. Mm. Um, uh, Florida is a chaotic place these days. It's The outcomes were strange. We saw lots of the Hispanic communities, Cuban and Venezuelan and Puerto Rican, uh, various communities and how they uh, were surprisingly strong for Trump. If you were in Florida, you could see the field work being done by the Trump campaign people. It was deep here. And the intensity of the divide in Florida is really very alarming, um, Vani. I, I live here. Um, I see two populations, one population of which I'm a part, are older. They're worried about the virus. They wear masks. They wash their hands. They stay socially distant. They're careful. And there's a lot of us here like that. And there's another cohort, younger, um, uh, 30s, 40s, 20s. And they're on the other side. They don't wear masks. They don't distance. They get sick. They don't care. They think it's like a cold. Uh, we just had an episode in Delray Beach on the other coast where there was a march on Main Street. And then at the end of the march, they had a mask burning event. So we really have a divided state. And the intensity of the division is alarming to some of us. I'm one of those. David, is, is it regional within the state as well? Florida is such a big state. You know, it's almost like there's South Florida, then there's Central Florida, North Florida. Is it different that way as well? I, I think it is, Paul. And I think not only is it regional, uh, North or South or the two coasts and the middle, but really regional in maybe the metropolitan centers. So Miami is quite different from Tallahassee, from Jacksonville, from Tampa, from Sarasota, where I am, and down to Naples. So you, you go to different places in Florida, and it is, uh, it is a microcosm, and they are distinguishable. And for us in Sarasota, we, you know, Cumberland is now headquartered here, and we're in uh, many states around the country. But in Florida, we, we have clients and relationships from Jacksonville to Key West and from Tampa to Fort Lauderdale. So we're on the phone or talking to our people all the time. And you would think you're in six or eight or ten different states, not just one. That's incredible, incredible. David, I'm going to ask you a question I asked earlier, but I'm just fascinated by it. Is this a post-election trade yet? Well, it, it, I, I don't know. We, we have, we, the way I think about it is we have an, a very unusual transition, or not, with Trump, who has created a unique president environment after 220 years. So what is Trump and the Trump supporters? They are a version of a revolution. And a revolution in an early stage has a lot of energy. You see it in the rallies, you see it in the expressions of support for Trump, and you see it in the concern of others who look at it and get worried about it. And Revolutions have to evolve, and then they have to get tired and they mature. This is a young revolution. How big it is, what it will do to be sustained, 
how much of it is idiosyncratic to one uh, unusual political figure remains to be seen. So how we how we deal with this is a very difficult thing. And from an investment point of view, from from an economics point of view, doubly so, because Trump has changed all global trade patterns, introduced protectionism in tariffs, uprooted agreements, withdrawn from them. So the disruption is the easy part. It's the reconstruction of whatever the new is going to be. That's the hard part. We've only seen the disruption, and we don't know the degree of it yet. So we're in a remarkable place. I, I tell my clients and friends we are writing a history book, and we are right in the middle of the fifth chapter, and it's a ten-chapter book. So, David, if former Vice President Joe Biden were to win the White House, what do you think his job one needs to be? Well, he he would like to be a healer. He's an old-time, seasoned politician. He's been in the Senate for a long time. He thinks he knows how the Senate works. Um, We don't know what the Senate's going to look like exactly, but we know it's going to be very close. And we also know the House didn't expand. It doesn't look like it. Pelosi's margin is is difficult. It's narrow. So uh, Biden is a politician with long skills. Can he accomplish some workable relationship and have policy? We know the policy. He wants climate change. That's a big issue. He wants an infrastructure bill. We, that's a big issue. He's going to raise taxes on certain areas of the economy and on wealthy people and on corporations. That's an issue. Can he pass them? How much can he get through the houses of Congress? This is uh, uh, an extraordinary I don't know that anybody can forecast trajectories or outcomes sitting here today. Yeah, and I mean, David, you know, the president has limited powers if you're talking about, uh, you know, a traditional president that doesn't sign executive orders all the time. And, and you know, some of those executive orders weren't really even, you know, in, in law. So if it is Joe Biden and he, he treats the presidency as a traditional presidency, what at all can he accomplish? Can he even rejoin the Paris Agreement, for example? That's something we know he wants to do. Well, it would seem to me, Vonnie, he, he can he can reverse executive orders just as easily as Trump can issue them. And, and he can use them. Um, also, it, it would seem that the country wants, or some of the country, wants less chaotic governance more calm, more traditional normalcy, and thirst for it. So Biden has a way to deliver it. Whether he can accomplish that remains to be seen, but he has his network of people who have governed before, and they have the the capability and experience to govern, and he knows them, and he's comfortable choosing the people to work with. In the case of Trump, we didn't have a transition team. We didn't form a government. It was chaotic from the very beginning, and the turnover has been so high. So that would speak in favor of Biden being able to have successes progressively. Let's hope so. Hey, David, thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us. Uh, We really appreciate it. David Kotak, he's a chairman and chief investment officer at Cumberland Advisors. 
a risk on day today on election day plus one. Let's get a sense of what's driving these markets. We can do that with our good friend, Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's a CEO and director of intelligence at Quill Intelligence. She's also a former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She's based in Dallas, Texas. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us here. So when you woke up this morning, you kind of got a look at the news feeds. What did you think we were going to see in the market today? Well, it was more like when I went to sleep this morning since I only <laughs> had a few hours to sleep. Um, so, you know, it, it, was, it was pretty apparent <clears throat> that the market started to factor in a, a lot of the benefits of gridlock, if you will, in the coming years. Uh, you know, plus the idea, you know, if Wisconsin and Michigan and Nevada do go to Biden, and I don't really follow polls at all, but I follow Vegas very closely. And that's what Vegas is saying right now. So if we get over the 270 electoral vote uh, line, you get a tamp down trade war, no stack Supreme Court, no rising corporate taxes, no rising capital gains taxes, negligible antitrust and stimulus, but not socialism. So, I mean, who doesn't win in this scenario? Uh, But, you know, we we do still have the specter of Unlike conspiracy theories that were that were running around out there, we do still have the specter of of, of the virus sitting out there as well. So, uh, but but no markets are celebrating. They have a lot to celebrate right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, it definitely looks like they're celebrating this immediate uh, sort of result. But if, as our previous guest said, there w- won't be anything to sort of uh, challenge on, at least in the in the courts. Then, you know, and, and, and we have divided government. So let's say, and I know this is all hypothetical because we don't have any answers yet, but let's say there's a President Biden with a, a Republican Senate. Is that gridlock? Is that what markets are enjoying here? Well, it, it, it's, it's the things that I said that, that, that they would be. It's, it's the inability to pass, you know, the sweeping green legislation, the things that were most uh, feared on the part of, of the GOP. And and that's why we've seen bond yields come down so hard. And it's not just here in the United States. We've seen bond yields come down worldwide today and volatility literally crash. So, Danielle, uh, you know, obviously the Fed is already in session, if you like. And tomorrow there's another meeting after which we'll have a decision and a statement from Fed Chair Jay Powell. Will this change anything about what statement might emerge tomorrow as opposed to if we really did have a, a, a you know, um, a, a strong mandate on either side? Well, I think you're going to hear the volume turned up even higher. Uh, remember, the, the, the Fed is not a spender. It is a lender. So uh, you're going to hear the volume turned up even higher because of the prospect for a smaller stimulus package than probably what most uh, Fed officials would like to see. And, that, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of very small Band-Aid but huge macroeconomic stimulus uh, measures that can be taken uh, along with the December the 11th continuing resolution. The, the government has to vote on that by December the 11th during lame duck, lame duck excuse me, to keep the government open. So it would just be a matter of, I did the math recently back of the envelope, about $100 billion dollars. Uh, to extend the CARES Act unemployment uh, benefits through the end of March, which would match up with when CARES Act forbearance on mortgages and uh, same could be said for rental eviction moratoriums. Again, you add those two up and it's, it's a rounding error for, for Uncle Sam of $100 billion, but you're preventing 
a massive fiscal cliff on December the 31st when the pandemic unemployment assistance, all of the different names of unemployment uh, jobless claims that we talk about every Thursday morning, those are set to expire at the end of the year. So is the rental eviction moratorium that uh, President Trump signed a memoranda to uh, to extend via CDC funding. So those are easy things, I think, that, that the Congress can do. But I think the Fed will reiterate that they really do want a larger stimulus package in order to carry this economy over what appears to be a growing coronavirus uh, third hospitalization wave. Yeah, so Danielle, you're, you're exactly right. The numbers are going in the wrong direction. Is there any appetite, do you think, for the Republicans to kind of change their tack and, and, and do, in fact, deliver a bigger number to whoever is president? Well, you know, it, it, it really is going to come down to, and this is just my view, but it is going to come down to some interesting comments that Bloomberg reported on a, a few weeks ago from Jamie Dimon and the cabinet that Biden chooses from the get-go. And those types of acts of goodwill on his part to show, don't tell that he's going to be centrist, that he's going to unify the country instead of unifying the party of, of the Democrats, if, if there are signs that Biden is going to follow through on some of his election promises that he is going to be uh, the Biden that we've always known straight down the middle, then I think that you would see a much more amenable uh, Senate-led, uh, GOP-led Senate. Danielle DiMartino, Boo, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Danielle is the CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence. She was a former advisor to at the Dallas Federal Reserve and also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. We always appreciate her thoughts. And Vani, getting some headlines coming across uh, the Bloomberg terminal. Georgia expects all votes to be counted today. And the state of Georgia has 200,000 ballots left to be counted. That's according to a state official. So making some headway uh, in the state of Georgia. And we just heard, of course, from uh, the state of Michigan as they continue to count their ballots. Yeah, I mean, I think we've heard from many of the states who have ballots left to count at this point. Really, the main message is reassuring voters that their vote won't go astray and it won't get not counted. And, you know, whether it's a Republican state or a Democratic state, you have been hearing from the governors and state officials that that is the case. So it will be interesting to see what President Trump will do about this and, and whether he intends to continue to carry out his threat, you know, to, to have election counting or ballot counting stopped beyond a certain point. I mean, nobody seems to think that that's a possibility, including the constitutional lawyer we just spoke with. Yeah, exactly right. So I think, uh, I guess the common theme we're hearing from these states is in terms of their messaging is every vote will be counted. Uh, you can have confidence in that. Uh, and then uh, obviously, so over the next several days, we should know something more clearly. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.